Hello friends, welcome back to Untrained Christianity, where we seek to help Christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current day issues. That whole aspect of biblically nuanced is what we'd like to focus on today. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be opening up enrollment to Finding My Place in God's Story course again. This is a course that I've developed a couple of years ago to help Christians, specifically people who desire greater clarity in life. It's kind of twofold. Clarity in life, how has God gifted them or what is their role in his work of reconciliation, but then also as a part of that, understanding the scriptures better and and discovering what the story of God is and what the story of Jesus is and how do we fit into that today. Leading up to that, as a part of that, I have invited a few guests to join me and we're going to discuss scripture and the Bible. And today I'm excited to have Drew Latin on. Drew is a friend of the podcast. He's a good friend of mine. I've had him on, I think, more than anybody else. And so Drew and I have kind of an ongoing conversation through WhatsApp and so forth. And so we were discussing some things about the Bible and what he's learned about reading scripture as he teaches literature in middle school. And so I'm excited for this conversation. I hope you find it helpful and beneficial as well. I'd love to hear your feedback. What aspect that Drew talks about in in relation to literature and reading the Bible stood out the most to you? What was kind of a new a new approach to you? You can drop comments in on the blog, on YouTube, and so forth. But without any further ado, here's my conversation with Drew. Welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, Drew. It's always good to have you on. It is good to be back I think, with you, both back on your podcast and back. Yeah, with you. I think I think you have officially set a record of three. This is your third time in the last six months or so, I think. Yeah, I felt I've, I I was a little bit nervous for your audience. You're either scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel or your finely attuned algorithm is, is self destructing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I I um. Well, there's a couple things. I for for our audience, Drew and I have a reasonable, frequent, ongoing. Sometimes there's deserts of of no back and forth, but a, a WhatsApp <laughs> thread that we kind of everything and anything we talk about eventually there at some point, and so it yep. it's just very natural to hop on and hey, let's do a podcast. But then, yeah, as I was thinking about my course, finding my place in God's story and wanting to have some conversation around understanding the Bible and how we read the Bible and how we fit into the story of scripture and everything. There's a a handful of people that come to mind that I think of would be great to talk about this with. And and you were one of the first ones. So it was kind of a natural, again, that's something we've talked about frequently here. So I hope, hope it's not too much for the audience. It's not too much for me. And that's kind of the, uh, criteria I go by for the most part, but you are your own algorithm. (laughs) Yeah. So I, basically my, my thought, particularly with Drew 
in this conversation of how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, I think a lot about the aspects of the Bible as literature, as a work of literature, the different pieces that go into understanding context, understanding idioms and different uh, genre within the literature and everything. And Drew, as a, you, you made a comment as a person who teaches English, you, th you think of biblical interpretation in light of that, like the, the same things you apply to guiding them through nonfiction work or something. How, yeah, yeah. just go into that yeah. more. Yeah. So I teach, you know, five days a week, uh, 32 weeks a year, I'm teaching English. And so that means we're opening books or sometimes, you know, pulling up PDFs on our Chromebooks these days and talking about what the text says. And yeah, sometimes it's something really complex like Shakespeare or, you know, poetry or something like that. And most of the time it's it's pretty basic. Part of what my job is is to get people excited about reading, and by people I mean middle school students. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and part of it is yes to teach how to write, but my favorite part and and in some ways I guess I shouldn't say the easiest part, but the, the most exciting part is to give my students tools and to practice together this skill of opening a text and understanding what it says, but then not just reading it as a phone book or leading, reading it as, you know, a legal document, but reading it for, to understand what the author is doing with things. And we talk about authorial intent. We talk about uh, motif. We talk about all this high level language, except I'm doing it with middle schoolers. So we break it down in a really simple way. And as I've been teaching English full time for what five years now, uh, English as uh, English to native English speakers, which is a totally different thing from yeah. what I used to do, which was ESL. So as I've been doing that, increasingly, I'm convinced that my work over the years in discipleship and preaching really has so much crossover with teaching, reading skills, comprehension skills, enjoyment of "quote unquote" literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what it it reminds me of. I think it's Karen Swallow Pryor that has talked about mm -hmm. the so that we've lost something a little bit in our culture right now. We we don't read as much nonfiction work, classical literature, and stuff like that. Then we've lost something a little bit in our. I think she talks about it in terms of imagination or just like understanding complexity, co complex things. Yeah, and how how that might affect the way we read the Bible. Yeah, I don't, I would definitely not um, argue with the notorious KSP, but I do, that's not really where I tend to come from. Like I didn't crack open Shakespeare until, uh, until about three years ago when I taught it for the first time, hmm. you know, I tried yeah. and it's like, I don't get this. I like Shakespeare. I don't know if I've actually read a full Jane Austen novel in my life. And I like Jane Austen novels, although I think my wife and I like the the BBC movies better. Um, so so I, I'm trying to put the, the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will, because actually that's where I tend to operate. And I think if we, not for all of, not for your very erudite audience, Asher, but for, for some of us. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I am not the English for, for, teacher. For some of us. <laughs> yeah, I use I use that word somewhat somewhat ironically. <laughs> um, irritate means having or showing great knowledge or oh, learning. Yeah. Um, 
anyhow, but but for for many of us, you start talking, even the word literature is very mm. well, is somewhat off putting, right? Because it sounds like school, and so I'm talking, yeah, yeah, I'm talking to to let's go really really basic level here, okay? We can look at you know one of my favorite works of literature, Doctor Seuss, and the story of Yertle the Turtle, okay. And if you haven't read Yertle the Turtle, it's a turtle who's king of all he sees, but he's sitting down in the bottom of the puddle and he wants to be higher up so he can see more and more and be king of everything he sees. And so he brings all the turtles together and stacks them, stacks them all up and he sits on top of the turtles. And then a bird flies over his head and he's like, oh, the bird is king over more than I have. And he wants to be that. And then, of course, in the end, the tower falls over and he ends up on the ground. So it's a great little story, right? And you could read that and enjoy the story. And that's actually about all you need to go. You could also go quite a few more levels deeper than that. You could go to a political perspective and recognize that Dr. Sor- Dr. Seuss was probably speaking of communism and talking about the Cold War. And you could, and how he was oppressing the communists were oppressing their people in order to lift up their rulers you could look at even a biblical parallel and think about the Tower of Babel. That's all there, and that's great. But even even another level before that is, well, let's think about uh, my family, like as we speak, is listening to the audiobook version of The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mentioned this on on that Jesus podcast. We're kind of on a kick with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien right now over the summer. And the the whole story again spoiler alert if you haven't read it frodo does get the ring to the to mordor and it's destroyed but as you move through the story you have this intense conflict between his desire for the ring to have power and getting rid of the ring and saving saving the world and most importantly his shire mm-hmm. so you have all this stuff and if you just read the book which isn't that complicated to read it's definitely not you know, like reading something that Karen Swallow Pryor would teach her students, probably. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Pryor. But you can read that and enjoy the story. And then as you read it when you're older, you're recognizing this struggle that um, Frodo has with his own nature and his own desires. And that resonates so deeply with so many of us in our experiences. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just rambling about literature, which I was trying not to do. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I, I love that. And it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, like, is, is that what sets literature that becomes classic, like, over a long period of time apart? Is that there, there are these multiple layers in which you could derive meaning, like a piece of, or, or is there, or does, is all literature that way? Like, is there always, anytime somebody writes, is there just something about that medium of telling a story that ha- you you have various applications you can make to it? Or is that just kind of an aspect of, of really good literature? Mm-hmm. Uh, different, different literature impacts different people in different ways at different times, et cetera, et cetera. So I hesitate to ascribe more value or less value to you know, literature. <laughs> I was talking with my son the other night about it. We were kind of joking around, but he was pretty earnest too, that he really felt like for him, the um, young adult series, How to Train Your Dragon, which is a, a book of a series of books about a boy who finds a dragon and trains it, that that was more 
deep and meaningful to him and moved him to tears in a way that C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicle of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia, never did. Mm-hmm. And he likes Narnia. And my my little heart is breaking here. Um, <laughs> but but I had to respect that. And I'm like, I, be- I better read these books. I think I read part of one of them, but I better see maybe I'm missing something. So I don't want to ascribe judgments yeah. to what people, the value they find. What I would say is that the best of literature tends to have that depth or complexity that you can find different levels of meaning while still enjoying it as a story. story. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. And and this is where, as side note, this is where I think a lot of people get frustrated with the idea of literature as such, because whether the language is old or we're so far removed from the original context, it doesn't grab us as story. And we know it's supposed to be good for us. We know it's supposed to have all this rich complexity, but we're so far removed from it. It's like, can't I read something else? Mm. And I, and I think that's valid, but, but along with complexity, it does have to have a certain universality to mm-hmm. it. And so I think that Frodo and Bilbo and Tolkien will last a lot longer probably than how to train your dragon because not because it's better, but because it has a universality to it that probably how to train your dragon doesn't have, mm-hmm. but you know, ask me after I've read the books this summer. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I think that's what I was trying to get at is a level of, yeah, maybe it's not good to say better, but like what, what makes it connect with various generations down the, yeah. Enduring, yeah. yeah. So what, what about this do you think of when it comes to reading the Bible and and biblical interpretation? Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the, the exciting question to think about, I think with, with your work, with looking at the Bible as story with looking at biblical theology and stuff. I I think for me, the, the number one most important thing that we so often forget is that the Bible is story. It does have context. And through the mixed blessing slash mixed curse of um, chapters and verses, we tend to look at the Bible like a dictionary or like a book of rules even because that's how it's set up. It's not set up naturally. A lot of people and and folks go check your own Bibles. A lot of people are still using Bibles that are done verse by verse by verse, rather than even having something as basic as paragraphed structures. And yes, I hear people all the time. They're like, well, it's a lot easier to find the verse if it's verse by verse by verse, one line per verse than it is with a paragraph chunk. I know. And that's the problem (laughs) because then we're just reading one verse. And so for me, the the most basic thing would be that idea of reading for context, reading the, the whole chapter, reading the whole book. Yeah. Obviously not, obviously not rocket science in a certain sense, but it's amazing how often we still need that reminder. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's, like that brings up a good point because it wasn't, I, I was never one of those to read the Bible through in, a, in 90 days. My brother would do that frequently. And I was just like, man, I, my younger brother at that. And so <laughs> it felt like he was much better at knowing the Bible and everything. I went through all kinds of insecurities mm-hmm. with that. So it wasn't until Bible college that I was forced to do that. Like to, oof, I have to get, you know, 12 chapters of Genesis read today. And yeah, but reading in context doesn't mean you have to read quickly though. Yeah. It just means you don't stop reading. Yeah. But I'm, I mean, for me, that means I'm reading all day. If I'm, 
<laughs> if I'm gonna, <laughs> but like read grasping actually for me I could not do it reading like I I used a lot of audio bible to get through the large yep. chunks and that opened up the a level of the story that just reading a chapter a day didn't well and it just just to to jump on what you said about audio bibles this is the thing if we've if we're primarily rejecting that if we're rejecting that the bible is primarily a book of rules then it's probably a good idea to read it as an to listen mm. to it it's a good idea to either read it out loud or to you know put in your earbuds and and listen to it and people are like oh i missed something i'll have to go back no no just let yeah. it go <laughs> you have all the time in the world to listen and to go back and re-listen um, and you know, I've heard you talk on your podcast about the the Dwell Bible app. That that's great because it's good quality. Some I remember an audio Bible I got. I got the cheapest one they had on clearance at CBD, uh, Christian Book Distributor. CBD means something different nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was this guy with this like thick, you know, like Eastern European accent reading it. And I was like, well, I'm going to read it. You know, read the CD, and because I'm going to be spiritual. And I hated it because he didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and now we have so much, you know, much, much better resources, even just for listening and, and letting it filter through us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or some of the kind of dramatized versions that were a little bit more old fashioned. Like I, I never got into those that, but you're to your point, like yeah. letting, letting things go and catching the overarching story and then coming back and like revisiting areas if you if you want to like that that's hard mm-hmm. for me to do but it, it's definitely been a part of kind of opening up the story aspect of scripture more yeah i've preached through the the book of acts it feels like i've i've done it pretty much in total twice now and once in thai and then once in english although i didn't get through the whole thing in with my thai fellowship back in the day but what I did, and I kind of had to do this when I was preaching in Thai, I would listen to the, like maybe a third of the book, even though I was just preaching one chapter, half a chapter, I would listen to the whole thing two or three times throughout the week before I even really sat down and read it. And then of course I'd read it and I'd go to my commentaries and I'd look up cross references and I'd start making notes, but just to really get the big ideas. Cause this sounds bad. And I was, this sounds bad to us as Christians because we're not supposed to trust, you know, the heart is just desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. But as we are born again and our hearts are transformed, and even as we're relying on the common grace that God has given us, it's kind of like I was joking with you at the beginning, talking about algorithms. Like your mind is wired naturally to pick up the biggest ideas of scripture, of whatever text you're looking at. And so you don't have to be afraid. This is where some bad teaching has come in. Don't be afraid to miss a portion Mm -hmm. of scripture Mm -hmm. it's not scarce to us today and so let your algorithm work to pick up the big ideas and then go back later on and see how the the smaller things that you might have missed fit in yeah have you been blessed by the work of unfeigned christianity if so i invite you to go deeper by becoming a member of unfeigned christianity on patreon all of our work is designed to help christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current day issues. And we could not do it without 
the support of our members. As a part of the membership, you get to go deeper into sorting through what does it look like to faithfully embody Jesus in a world and in our culture and time. There are three main tiers of membership. If you become an advanced member, which is the middle tier, I will send you a free copy of Lori and Matt Krieg's book, In Impossible Marriage. This is the best marriage book I've read. If you become an advanced member this month, I'll send you a free copy now here's the really good deal. When you do an annual membership, you get 16% off. If you'd like to see more details, just visit asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. You mentioned in with literature how you can enjoy the story, Dr. Seuss or something like that at, at its face value. And then you revisit it and go a little deeper with the political implications and even drawing biblical implications or whatever. In what ways does the Bible do that, and and how how does that? Because in a way, like we th- we might think of it as what's the verse talks about the the word of God is alive, sharper than any two edged mm-hmm. sword. So like this, it it is at least for me, I I would have used to think of it solely in this way that it's like a a living spiritual entity thing that always has like ever adapting meaning or like to whatever situation. Uh Whereas thinking it through as literature and story, I think more like you talked about, like the first, the first time reading through it, I learned something and I got something. I didn't have to know historical, cultural context, all that. The more I learned some Mm -hmm. of that, the more it, the, the layers just continue to come off. What, yeah. What, what do you think of in regard to that as we read scripture. Yeah. So scripture is definitely more than just mm-hmm. literature. And and let me emphasize that. I believe that, that the spirit breathed the scriptures through the hearts of men and women and they recorded it and they passed it down and scribes copied it down. And this whole process is guided by the sovereignty of God. So it's definitely more than um, literature, but it's not less than literature. Mm-hmm. And we so often treat it like, well, if it's if it's more than just a a text written down on paper, then it has to somehow we have to use different tools. Which okay, you know, the Holy Spirit can inspire you and and all that and work the truth into your heart. But at a very basic level, it's still words on a page, and it's still a text that was written, you know, over you know thousands of years and thousands of years ago, and we can use some of the tools. So. I actually pulled up one of the tools that I use with my kids at the beginning of the school year. And these are called, um, and you can, you can go and buy the book. It is not a Bible study book. It's called notice and note. And a group of teachers put this together and they basically break down these things that a student should look for. A middle school student should look for in a text. Hmm. And these might be familiar to you. The concepts might be familiar to them, to you, if you've looked at, if you took middle school English, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the first one would be contrasts or contradictions and what you'd call it in a regular class. That's not trying to put the cookies at the bottom shelf is um, irony, mm-hmm. verbal situational, situational or dramatic irony, something you're reading along and all of a sudden some, you're like, wait, I didn't expect that to happen. Like you're reading the story of the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah coming to earth and he's born in a stable. Yeah. That's ironic. <laughs> that's not what you'd expect. And so if I was teaching the story of Christ's birth 
to my middle school English students, which I, I wouldn't, you know, if my superintendent is listening, no, I'm not doing that. But if I was, I would have them put a little CC next to that for contrast or contradiction because it's not what you expect. It's an irony. It's, and this is what you could totally use to look at scripture. And I do that. Like I'm reading through a text and we look at it together and I'm like, wait, why did this happen? We wouldn't have expected that. You can talk about turning point or climax in this curriculum I use. It's an aha moment, they call it, or a turning point climax. The pivot in the story where something is revealed. Um, conflict. You've heard of conflict in literature, man versus man, man versus self, et cetera, man versus society. Who is, and I think of this, for example, with Paul in the book of Romans, so or First Corinthians. You have to think about who is Paul actually contending with who is the fight with? What is he struggling with? In my in this program, the notice and note program, I call this a tough question. And I just have the kids put it a question mark there. What's going to happen next? How will this be resolved? The tough question. Theme or message, words of the wiser. A, a big one. And a lot of our reading or our Bible study programs talk about this, the motif, repetition, symbolism, theme. But this pops up a lot in scripture too just to underline, highlight what words come over and over again. Book of John is famous for repeated ideas, repeated symbols, you know, the I am statements of Jesus. That's very basic to curriculum, yeah. <laughs> to my to my English yeah. curriculum. And it transfers directly to, you know, the greatest literature of all time, yeah. <laughs> the word of God. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that. I'm going to look that up for working with my kids as well. I think of... Like I never caught before the significance of of man looking and seeing with his eyes that something looks to be wise or like looks to be good. But that's one of those repeated themes like throughout as you mm -hmm. it happens with Eve and then it happens, you know, it's repeated. We have Israel and judges like they're all doing what is right in their own eyes and to tie those those elements together and it you begin discovering deeper, deeper meanings, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, people are like, oh, wow, this is so nerdy or, you know, this is getting really complex. You know, some people sort of have an aversion to commentaries and such because of this, but it is so undeniable that the writers of scripture are doing that. John, mm -hmm. in the beginning was the word. You see that phrase in the beginning, you can't help but go back. If you've read scripture and you're looking for these um, again and again, as I teach my middle school students, you're looking for these motifs. You can't ex help but go back and think, wait, how does Genesis start? Yeah, yeah. And then you go to First John, and it says, that which we have heard from the mm -hmm. beginning. And you can't deny that these are literary texts. Yeah, yeah exactly. So how do we, I'm going to use a word, <laughs> try not to be nerd, nerdy. Uh-oh. <laughs> exegesis like anybody who's done any kind of bible training or even just in that world uses the we hear the word exegesis a lot and basically just a dumbed down definition is just taking like this is what the text is saying and having that mm -hmm. drawn out you asked the question or you were interacting with the question, how do we develop better exegetical filters or more awareness of the filters we have? Yeah, I, I think that's a good yeah. point because all of us, whether we realize it or not, we're 
we're reading the text and we're concluding what that means through certain filters. Yeah. And so your question was, yeah, how do we develop better filters or awareness of them without totally undermining what we believe or who we are? Do you, you kind of threw that out there as a question you've been pondering and thinking about, <laughs> but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. And, and and it's a little bit scary to do this, to use, again, even nerdier language, this metacognitive approach where you're thinking about how you're thinking about things. But it's it's actually really essential for me to acknowledge that it's wrong, that I'm wrong, that I'm wrong, and not to say that I'm right, but just to acknowledge that I'm coming from a perspective. We have had for Oh, I don't know. You can probably tell me better. Um, but like going back probably to the 1930s and the the fundamentalist movement, a real emphasis on reading the Bible as a historical grammatical interpretation. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that emphasis has been strong enough that we've neglected at times the fact that this is actually a literary text as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not this like wooden sort of, again, with lots of respect to him, you know, John Piper making diagrams and connecting ideas and stuff. There's also just this sort of relaxing and enjoying the text for what it is. And so I'm not saying that the the historical or grammatical approach is wrong at all. That's kind of where I tend to default. But I am saying we have to be aware of that and aware that maybe that's not what the original writers were imagining we would do with it. Yeah. So that's not really answering the question. I think my my current place where I find myself is to really think, wait, how do I grow an awareness of what the text is saying? Yeah. Or I'm sorry, not of what the text is saying. How do I grow an awareness of what my filters are with the text when I decide what it's saying? Am I aware that maybe somebody else is saying it differently? Yeah, yeah. I think you said something early on. I can't remember verbatim but in relation to the dr seuss story or the the turtle story or that is the dr seuss story oh <laughs> um, yep the um something about like it gave the idea of like different people reading it drawing out different applications or me or it means something different to each person and so i think i think that question becomes relevant as we talk about scripture being a story what keeps people from just like drawing different, Oh, this Mm -hmm. means this for me, or this means that. And how do we, yeah. Yeah. See, there's a difference between saying, Oh, the Bible means different things to different people and saying that the application of scripture looks different to different people. I -hmm. do believe, and this is where I show my true fundamentalist colors that, um, any given scripture will have one primary interpretation rather than 17. There might be secondary interpretations. So, so to go with the Dr. Seuss story, and again, maybe you should include a link to the PDF in your podcast to, as we examine this series text. Yeah. The, the primary meaning is that this is a parable about the dangers of seeking power. This is, and again, like literally it takes place in a turtle pond. <laughs> that would be the primary meaning. But as I apply that, as I process it, I can start to say, you know what? Theodore Geisel was probably thinking about communism or capitalism, or he was thinking... Another example from Dr. Seuss would be, Horton, here's a who. A person's a person, no matter how small. 
And that phrase was taken by a lot of pro-life folks that were opposing um, abortion. And they're like, oh, look, Dr. Seuss is pro-life. And they actually put that on their letterhead until the widow of of Dr. Seuss, like, please stop. He was actually um, pro-choice. <laughs> and, and so the one primary meaning of a person's a person's no, person, a person, no matter how small is talking about this elephant sitting on the, or no, rescuing the, the little, the little who colony, right? Mm-hmm. That's the primary meaning. The application might say, this is why we should protect immigrants. This is why we should protect embryos. But that's where the difference comes, not where the primary meaning is. Yeah. So again, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm rambling here, but I feel like that's pretty important because there are a lot of people that say, no, the scripture actually means this. And it's like, um, no, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't just make up, make say what it says. You know, a person can take scripture and, and say, apply in a lot of different ways and find meaningfulness in a lot of different ways, but they can't, I think it's wrong just to cut to the chase. I think it's wrong to take scripture and say that when Jesus was good buddies with John the Baptist and speaks highly of him, that somehow means that Jesus is in favor of same sex relationships, uh, sexual mm-hmm. relationships. Mm-hmm. That's not, well, you have your interpretation and I have mine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that distinction. There's, there's the application is going to be different depending on, and I think <laughs> to get all academic and stuff, I think it's grasping God's word. Maybe that has like the, the mm-hmm. whole bri- bridge to applicate, like how you figure out what the application is for your particular context and stuff like the, those, th- those things are helpful in deciphering. Like that can still be a whole process. So what is the application for me today? But deciphering that there is a, intended meaning or a best way of reading this. And then- yeah. And let's be clear. 90%. I don't, I don't have an actual data point here, but I would guess 90% of scripture is sufficiently clear enough that we don't really have a lot of debate over what it primarily means mm-hmm. over what its primary meaning is. Maybe even 95%. Unfortunately, some of the stickiest passages are the ones that we debate over what it's meaning, like divorce and remarriage. You had Dwight mm-hmm. Gingrich on, I just preached on that at our church. Yeah. Dwight and I would have different perspectives on the text at this point. And like genuinely disagree on the, well, at least some some of the primary meaning of it, right? <laughs> hmm. mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think we have to go around saying saying that most of scripture is unclear or hard to understand. Yeah, and that narrative is kind of pervasive a little bit. It's like ten people will study the same passage and come to ten different conclusions, and. <sighs> To your point, m- most of the Bible, no, that's not. <laughs> yeah, and I now I feel like maybe I'm being a little bit glib uh, because I, I also get that. But again, what I what I think we need to do, and here's maybe some practical advice. I think when I find myself caught up in struggling, what does Scripture actually say about divorce, remarriage, or what does it mean that God made the male and female, and and how does that apply to my marriage or to my relationships with others? And I'm really getting caught up trying to understand this. It's important. I don't want to stop wrestling through to understand what it says. But the the advice I have for myself and maybe for others is to back up and look at the scriptures that are clear and yeah. and rest in those, yeah. soak in those scriptures that are clear for a while 
and then get another running start at the tough ones again. Hey friends, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Dwell app. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dwell audio Bible app, but this app is phenomenal. It It's changed my life in several different ways. As a Bible college student, I do tremendous amounts of Bible reading throughout the semester, more than I normally do. And I'm not a fast reader. And so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the Dwell app. One of of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative, reflective music played in the background of the reader. So it's not dramatized. Some some audio Bible apps are dramatized and that's a little, I don't know, not my cup of tea. But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent or a well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework, but also I have found, sometimes I'll be listening to audio Bible as I commute someplace, or as I'm doing some other work, or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just... It's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my Air, AirPods and listen to the Dwell app is an incredible way to start my morning, just a peaceful worship meditation. I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it. I personally think you should read and hear it both, but that's one thing I like about Audio Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before. I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something, and I can't say enough good about the Dwell app. And so if you would like to take your meditation, your Bible reading to another level, you can also, if you're not able to sleep at night, you can put in your AirPods and and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way. I've used that at times as well. But you can start for free. There's a link in the description below or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan which I have and it's to me it's very much worth it just in the way a couple things the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view a fresh experience with scripture and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework it's been very helpful for me yeah yeah no that's good and kind of to come full circle to a point you made about literature being that like there are it's okay to be reading through and discover you know i don't know what that means and and you kind of move on and and continue through the story mm-hmm. and you're going to come back and revisit it and or there may be a thing like i think it means this i could be wrong but i think it means this and you discover a while later that oh maybe you were wrong or maybe you were right yep. it's i think we live in a time where 
knowledge is almost like idolized, like knowing it for certainty. And, and we, we struggle sometimes with, would you say that's true? Or because as I'm saying that, I'm like, well, on the other hand, like I think, we're always equivocating and nuancing and everything. But. Yeah, I think that's probably like for eighties and nineties kids, that's kind of the <laughs> the the world the waters we swam in. You know, certainty, confidence, you know, answers mm. for things, no compromise really was where we need to head. And I would say folk <laughs> your generation, my generation, were a lot more open ended, and I think that's good. I also think obviously there's a, there's a fallacy there where, you know, what's, what's the old, old saying, you know, in, you'll have to quote it from me, but like in that we would have unity in the important things and um, liberty in things that aren't so important. But what we've done, what I think a lot of my, my friends and I at times have done, I shouldn't say a lot of my friends, but a lot of folks have done is they're like, well, we don't want to hold something with a closed hand when we're not sure about it. And then we end up holding nothing with a whole closed hand. We end up holding on to nothing. Mm-hmm. And it is just, everything's just lost in nuance and, and maybes and yes, buts. And the, the problem is, yeah. is that yeah. we're talking about scripture. It actually does have to mean something. If we're actually saying that this yeah. is, that this is God's revelation for us, that this is, what he left with us to understand who Jesus is and it's through Jesus that we come to God, then we have to acknowledge that there's truth there. And somehow we have to get back to saying that at least some of it is, um, has perspicuity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To use another, which, which basically just means it, what is perspicuity? It's, it's sufficient to, how would you just define perspicuity? I stay away from that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going into this and, and I, yeah, you bring out the worst of the academic nerd in me. It, I think it's the yeah. idea that it's free from being confusing or unnecessarily yeah. um, obscure. And I think what I've heard people say in relation to scripture, we believe in the perspicuity of scripture. Scripture is sufficiently clear for guidance. And that's important, mm-hmm. sufficiently clear for guidance. So it might not be clear in everything. Yeah. We might not. Yeah. Or, or even, I think, um, I think some translations render it wisdom, like clear for wisdom. Is it Peter or Paul that talks about wisdom unto salvation? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the whole notion of wisdom literature, like that, that's kind of bringing in another piece too, but the Bible as wisdom literature, meaning... I think kind of my first introduction to this was, oh, what's his name? The guy that wrote Decision Making and the Will of God, I think. Uh, Jerry somebody or. I can't remember the the author, but this notion that like God's giving us wisdom that we can then. Gary Friesen, yeah. And then the Bible Bible Project talks about it quite a bit as well. It it helps me. I'm not sure I've entirely internalized what all it Mm. helps me do, but it does kind of. It, it pulls me in to engage with it more than if I think the Bible is kind of this rule book or instruction manual, then I just kind of check in when I need to. Yeah. As opposed to when through the whole text, I'm getting wisdom for, for salvation, but even just ethics of living my daily life, parenting, you know, 
relating with people. Yeah. That, that kind of changed, kind of changed my view and pulled me into engaging it more. Yeah. It, and I, so I, I've been reading or just, just read Ginger Volo Duggar's book or Duggar Volo's book, her kind of spiritual memoir of leaving um, Bill Gothard and IBLP. And so some of those are kind of fresh in my memory again, as the process through which um, Bill Gothard took people was like three seminars that were like 30 and 40 hours long. And then you're supposed to bring this material home with you and soak in it for week after week. And if you're part of the homeschool curriculum, you have the wisdom books every day and you're just soaking in a particular way of viewing the world. And that's what, that was what their tagline was giving the world a new approach on life. And he did. <laughs> Gothard did. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. a lot of it looked like scripture and smelled a bit like scripture, but he wasn't actually giving scripture. He was giving a somewhat twisted and perverted view on life, but it was mm-hmm. effective for a lot of people. And Ginger talks about this in her book because it's how she evaluated everything. It just became part of her. And so I guess what I'm saying is that we should start a cult of the Bible <laughs> and that we should... <laughs> you know, be brainwashing ourselves again and again to, to put it very negatively. And that's yeah. called, that's what we call irony. Um, <laughs> we should be washing our brains in this stuff, in the story of scripture, not even necessarily trying to understand every single word all the time, although that's important too, right? But to have your brain kind of redirected so it's thinking in that way. I have a question for you yeah. though, as I think about this and some of what you said about wisdom literature do you think that we as Christians read Proverbs too much or not enough? Because hmm. Proverbs is like the the paradigm for wisdom literature. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. You're saying like if we read it more, would we would we have a better handle of the nature of wisdom literature? Or? Oh, so here's, here's, here's kind of my cards on the table, and I, I'd like you to correct me then. I have... I grew up where like my parents literally had a book called Proverbs for Parenting and it was a topical collect the book of Proverbs arranged topically for this is what you tell your kid when they do this and this is what you tell your kid when they do that. I don't think it was bad at all. But as I grew up and then I went to something like the basic seminar and different teaching, so much of what I was exposed to from the book of Proverbs was people reaching in, pulling out a verse and saying, this is why you shouldn't take out a loan on your house or your car reaching in, mm-hmm. pulling out a verse saying, you know, this is why you should, uh, yeah, a lot of different things, often dealing with finances. And they're saying, this mm-hmm. is wisdom. This is what you have to do if you want to be successful in life. And then I kind of pulled back even further, you know, in reaction to that, I pulled back. And then I pulled back again from the book of Proverbs because it's, a lot of it really does feel very much old covenant. And it's like, you know, let's just mm-hmm. stick with the New Testament here. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that tendency at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I've thought about it a lot with, you know, Dave Ramsey is kind of a, another guy sure. that like all scripture he shares for money is per, is almost always a proverb. And there's like the thing, sometimes I wonder if we know what proverbs proverbial writings are intended to do. Like there is, there is, Jesus even does some of it too with his parables. Like there's this on the face value. Okay. Because of uh, what's an example of if you 
think of the puzzling story of Jesus and the unrighteous the steward. Title? Unrighteous steward, and the it's like, what in the world is going on there? And well, there's clearly like a deeper meaning in relation to the kingdom of God that Jesus is trying mm-hmm. to to communicate, not just a way of making sure you're taken care of if you happen to be fired or <laughs> something like, yeah. but that's, that's also kind of true. Like it's true. If you take care of people, cut their, their loans in half and help, like they're, they're going to be a lot. Note to self, never hire Asher <laughs> to handle my finances. <laughs> well, there's maybe more than one reason you <laughs> probably don't want to do that, but, but like that. So, so Proverbs aren't intended to be laws like distinct laws of you've got mm-hmm. to do it this way but rather they're uh, the word is slipping my mind principles. that type of speech that, well yeah they they have principles that but there's a there's a word oh, i can't think of it it's okay. proverbs <laughs> yeah and maybe that's what i that's the piece i need to to rest on that if i know that the book of proverbs and some of these other writings are not strictly saying they're not laws. They're not mathematical equations. They're tendencies, they're generalizations, they're truth to guide me. Maybe that, that should give me more freedom to dive back into it. So, yeah, I think, I think what I've seen from groups like the Bill Gothard, although we were like, we never went through the wisdom booklets and stuff like that, but it, to, to me, it feels like he made certain things laws as opposed to truly viewing it as, wisdom like as sayings like these are common a lot of proverbs literally were common sayings in the ancient mm-hmm. world and but there but there's also the aspect of so proverbs is a genre of way a way of writing so it's kind of short sayings even sometimes short stories or yep using a lot of irony and mm-hmm. stuff that things contrasted to to make points and help us understand deeper truths of life. Yep. But the Bible as wisdom literature as a whole, like wisdom literature, the goal of a proverb or is that there is this face value and then there's this deeper intended meaning. And the Bible as a wisdom literature is to, even though it's not all written proverbially, okay. like we, we want to recirculate through and through the word because there's there's going to be it. these kind of what we were talking to earlier, deeper meanings that help us grasp the wisdom we need for navigating all of life according to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's, see, and I, even as you were saying earlier, talking earlier, I kind of took the idea of wisdom literature in a very narrow sense, like the the, the book of Proverbs, for example. And I, I see what you're saying, like the parables and even the whole story of Jesus, which does, especially again, the book of John does bear this idea of being formed into a, into a story for us. So yeah, I like yeah, that. It's formative. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the formative, word I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. And to go for, I was just going to say to your point, like God, God is wanting, I think you said early on, um, it's breathed out by God. God is intending to create something within us through his word. Yeah. I I wanted to back up just, just a minute. If anybody's listening this far, 
I said a little earlier that, you know, most scripture has one primary meaning. And I, I even want to hesitate just a bit at that. I think it's true. <laughs> but there, I, I want to underline, there are a lot of passages that people do have genuine differences on. And you can like open up a commentary and, and see it. I think what I'm saying is as you zoom out, you know, to the verse level and then the chapter level and then the, the flow of the narrative, it's like, you know what, it's actually doesn't really matter, you know, what kind of tree Zacchaeus climbed up on, or it doesn't really actually matter whether G Joseph had a coat of many colors or if it just had a, a stripe going through it. <laughs> These are the sorts of things that I'm saying context helps a lot with. Um, mm -hmm. I just don't want, don't want people to say, yeah, you could, you could go to the wrong place. Like, well, there's one primary meaning and I've got it. And yeah, <laughs> see, you see how I'm no, no yeah. longer an eighties kid. Cause I'm constantly like, even when I come out somewhat dogmatic, I have to dial it back a bit. <laughs> I'm trying to decide if I go here. Or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll go there. The. The reading of the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think the answers in Genesis approach to reading that has caused us to sometimes lose like the, the greater thing that yep. God is wanting to make sure that we get before we go deeper into the story. Like there's there's an even bigger thing that God is wanting. The specifics of the age of the earth and all that isn't as clear as, as what some people make it out. That doesn't make who's creator, what's the intention of creation, what hat, like why, what is this cosmic problem and struggle that, that humanity is now dealing with? Like that's pretty clear. Not only is it fairly clear in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, but it's continued to be extrapolated and kind of, fleshed out further as you as you progress through the story yeah um, that, that's such a, a yeah. good example um i think most people reading the book of Proverbs or the book of genesis of those first three chapters are going to come away even without opening a commentary they're gonna be like oh wow god made the heavens and the earth he made people in his own image he did things in an order he did things in a structure and what he did was good like those big ideas will come together Somebody else, and this kind of gets back to our year to the turtle, somebody else could take that, having the primary the primary interpretation that God made the heavens and the earth, he did it orderly, he did it according to his good wisdom, and he called it good, and he made man and woman in his own image. Um, somebody can take that and then also say, you know, do the, the Ken Ham, well, also, did you know that this actually really tells us a lot about the science of it and stuff? And I'm like, sure, that's kind of fun. Just like I can read Yertle the Turtle to my kids and they understand, well, we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And somebody else can be like, oh, well, you're actually missing. It was actually about communism versus capitalism or whatever. And I'm like, no, this is a story. And if we spend so much time thinking about the sociopolitical implications of Dr. Seuss, we're going to miss out on the fun of reading a story that does have a clear moral. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people could get back down pretty far into thinking about, you know, what does this mean in relation to the metaphor as temple and, you know, all this, this imagery, is that wrong? Is it bad? No, I think it's good, but fundamentally 
we can't miss the forest for the trees that God made us, et cetera. So yeah, I totally agree with you. The book of, or the first three chapters of Genesis were kind of neglected by me for a while because it it tells me that evolution is wrong and that's its primary purpose. (laughs) And it wasn't until if I could just give one, one other example, it wasn't until I was teaching the first three chapters of the book of Genesis in a Buddhist context. And I was expecting, you know, I was all geared up with my Ken Ham stuff and I sit down with these Buddhist college students and we sit down and we do our first, I think our third Bible study in the book of Genesis. And I'm like, yeah, we believe God made the earth. Yep. That makes lots of sense. Yep. The, you know, Prachau, the great spirit made the heavens and the earth and he made people with the divine image in them. Totally agree. And I'm like, okay, so now what do we study? Cause, <laughs> cause you know, they yeah. didn't want to know about <laughs> evolution and they're like, yeah, evolution. We're taught that we don't really care about that. Cause we're not science majors. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? Well, we talked, so see, that's why it was cool for me. Cause then we could move in to talk about how we were made in the image of God in that Bible study hmm. and how we each have value. And that was really a more meaningful message to them than, yeah. you know, you know, let's prove the Darwinists wrong. Cause that just wasn't yeah. meeting their needs. So. If, if you, if you set up the framing, I'm sorry, <laughs> I came on to interview you. Now <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> preachy. Um, <laughs> If you set up the framing as, as though Genesis is all about young earth creation, you become disconnected then as you, as you progress through the rest of the story, because very little of the rest of the Bible interacts with questions around young, the age of the earth, young earth creation. Yep. If you set up the framing as Genesis is all about God, he's good, he's creator, and he's made man in his image to reflect his goodness and beauty, like the rest of this biblical story is fleshing out that conflict of man rightly imaging God or doing yep. imaging themselves or imaging the serpent. Like that conflict is continued. And I'm not throughout. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for a pastor who was educated in creation science back in the late seventies, who took my dad, who was super intellectual, a science major in college and said, Actually, science hasn't disproven the existence of God. Let me show you. So I'm forever grateful to that. Mm-hmm. I just think that's not really where the conflict is primarily at this point. And so yeah. I think to took a three-week course through the book of Genesis at a Bible college and or a junior level Bible college. And the instructor there was supposed to teach the whole book of Genesis. He spent the first two weeks of our three week course in the creation narrative, not even, not even getting to the fall, (laughs) just, he was so loaded Mm -hmm. with this proves the scientists wrong. It was, it was good, but I was like a Jim, I wanted to get the rest of it. And we, we never really did. It's like Abraham, you know, Isaac, oh, let's move on past, past. I think he did the books, the story of Joseph, which is like five, six, eight chapters in the end of the book in like a half of a lesson. So. Yeah. And I, I want to like, sometimes I talk about this and what can feel sticky is I'm, I'm afraid. Cause I've, I've had people say, well, I can't trust anything you say about the Bible now. And like we teach, we currently still use curriculum that teaches young earth creation with our kids. I'm just trying to help us understand that what scripture, like the point of Genesis is 
is something does it is it plausible that god created within six literal days absolutely but there's something bigger that he wants us to grasp as we go into the rest of his beautiful yeah. story yeah and that gets back to talking about how we read the the bible what the literature we're looking at and um, if I could go to the other end of the Bible as another example, the book of Revelation. And the problem with the book of Revelation mm -hmm. as we read it is that we have our exegetical lenses. We have our assumptions about what it says, but we haven't interrogated them. We haven't developed an awareness about them. And there's so much in the first chapter of the book of Revelation that is transparently clear that it's not literal <laughs> that it's it's a story he's trying to show us it's a you know apocalyptic literature to get technical but it's telling us something beautiful that these pictures are only glimpsing at they're only giving us little glimpses of anybody could read the book of revelation and be like oh this is not this is not literally what's happening it's true but it's not literal mm -hmm. and yet until we actually take the time mm -hmm. to think through how we're approaching the book of revelation we're going to be really confused. It's like me. I don't know. I must've been like yeah. seven years old and this is, I hope I haven't told this story to you before. <laughs> it, it was actually so embarrassing to me when I realized what I did. I, um, but I was like six or seven years old and I'm reading through my Bible for the first time and just like taking pieces here and there in the new Testament. And I keep running into the same story about Jesus crucifixion. And I'm like going back and looking at the page numbers and I'm like, wait, it talks about Jesus being crucified here. And then later on, it talks about Jesus being crucified here. And I go to my mom and I'm like, so are there like two or three Jesuses? Like what's going on here that, that there are two or three different um, stories here? Did he come back more than once? Because, you know, there's a second coming. So maybe there's like a third and fourth coming. And that's why I have all these different narratives. And so mom explained to me four gospels telling the same story that happened one time. We need to do that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Speaking of Revelation, have you ever read Eugene Peterson on Revelation? No, I haven't. I actually uh, have it on my desk here because I just finished up a class on it. But it's it's kind of an old, one of his earlier works, I think, and maybe not his best necessarily. But he he has the point, talks about how Revelation as put, like he, he talks about different, genres and, and purposes of revelation but one is as as or john as a poet and that poets their goal is not to explain information as much as have you experienced yeah something and so we have everything we need to understand and know god and now john is wanting to help us particularly a variety of congregations who are experiencing suffering and persecution like experience god in a, in a new way. And that was kind of an interesting take on I hadn't thought of, speaking of literature mm -hmm. and poetry and stuff, I hadn't thought of it quite in that way. Yeah, I think my favorite favorite book that I've read, read, read lately on, on the book Revelation is Jeremy Duncan's Upside Down Apocalypse. And I have major disagreements with, with some of his other work and his church and stuff, but his his approach to the book of Revelation is just so easy to read and fun and makes so much sense yeah i have i haven't read Jer yep. jeremy duncan upside down apocalypse okay. yeah well thank you drew for we're at an hour 
and we could probably go as long as we wish. But the goal of this conversation was to unpack the Bible as literature. And, and as you said, it's, more, it's certainly more than literature, but it's not less than literature. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Unfeigned Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.